This morning we start off a new fall series together called Christ in the Old Testament. And so to begin that series, I want to start in the New Testament. So if you have a Bible, I want you to turn to the book of Luke, Luke 24. If you don't have one, that is fine. We've got a sheet in front of you uh, that you can follow along. Luke 24, beginning in verse 13. I'm going to read it, and then I'll pray for us to get us started this morning. This is Luke 24, beginning in verse 13. Luke writes, That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other and about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a prophet, mighty indeed, a word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that He was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of our women of our company amazed us. They were there at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but did not see the angels. Verse 25, and he said to them, O foolish ones. Slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Join me. Let's pray together. Father, as we begin another fall uh, together, and as we dive into your word this morning, We pray that you would do, through your word, what only you can do. Father, we ask that as men, we would be honest. Honest with one another, and honest before you. And that as we meet you here, this morning before we go to work, that you would use your word to pierce us through. That you would do nothing less and conform us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we would leave this place transformed by the hope that we have in the gospel. And so, Father, just like the disciples, we need you to open our eyes to see Jesus this morning. Show us your Son, Christ, in the Scriptures. We ask in his strong and powerful name. Amen. What would it look like, do you think, if Satan were to take over a city? What do you think that city would look like if he overran it, set himself up as the mayor, and made sure that all the laws were according to his wishes? D.C., good. Okay, I wasn't looking for a real city, maybe, but I've got good friends in D.C. That's not fair. Um... Would there be widespread violence? Would there be um, pornography and vending machines? 
where there be um, deviance and crime rampant? Would there be persecution for any believers who were there? What would it look like? It's a question that almost 60 years ago now, a Presbyterian pastor named Donald Gray Barnhouse tried to answer on a nationally syndicated radio program. What would it look like if Satan took over an American city? This is his description. He said that all the bars and pool halls would be closed. Pornography would be banished. The streets would be pristine. Sidewalks would be occupied by smiling people saying hello to each other every morning. There would be no swearing. Children would answer, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And on Sunday mornings, every church would be full. And yet in those churches, Christ would not be preached. Over the last 60 years or so, theologians have begun to identify a phenomenon in modern evangelical Christianity. That somehow we have learned how to practice Christianity without Jesus Christ. A Christless Christianity. You think this morning, well, Paul, how could that be possible? I mean, it's called Christianity, after all. How is it possible to practice Christianity without Jesus Christ? A couple sociologists have termed this phenomenon. They call it this. They call it moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic in this way. God wants us to be good, to be nice, to smile, to do the right thing, to be fair to each other, right? To be good, follow all the rules. Therapeutic in the way that the central goal of life is to be happy. And so that's what God wants for us, right? That he, he's, he's there to be a therapy to us, that we can go to Him when we feel sad. Deism, that God is not a God who wants to particularly be involved with our lives. He's just kind of out there and we're down here, unless we're facing a crisis. In those moments, then, yeah, we can go to Him and ask that He would somehow intervene. But these terms, moralistic therapeutic deism, this is not the gospel. This is not... Christianity with Christ at the center, and it's not the message of the Bible. I think the, the greatest example of this kind of thinking, of a Christless Christianity, practicing Christianity without Jesus Christ, is found in the way that we read the Bible, the way that we approach the Scriptures themselves. And this morning... We're kicking off a series called Christ in the Old Testament. And really, this is the question I want you to wrestle with as a man before God. How do you think about the Bible? How do you read it? How do you approach it? And most importantly, what are you searching for? What are you looking for when you go to read the Scriptures? You see, I think we approach the Scriptures with a framework so often that is moralistic, therapeutic, deistic. What do I mean by that? 
And it's so easy to look at the Bible as a rule book, a collection of rules that we're supposed to follow. Or perhaps it's a, a guidebook, a place that we go to get good advice, maybe even a place that we try to read and maybe somehow get a glimpse of our future, almost like a bad fortune cookie. Or, or, or we go to it like it's some kind of textbook that if we can just know and amass as much knowledge as we can about God, then somehow maybe we can be um, enlightened like the Gnostics, or like Eastern philosophy, that somehow we'll know more than other people about God, and that'll somehow set us apart. How is it that you approach the Scriptures? You see, I believe, just like the disciples were on the road to Emmaus, that so often, even though many of us in this room have walked with Jesus Christ for many, many years, sometimes He's becoming harder to see even the most obvious of places. There Christ was on the road to Emmaus, standing, resurrected right before His disciples, and they did not recognize Him. And this is what Jesus did. I want you to look at your sheet. Verse 27. In order to reveal to His disciples who He was, to help them to see that this was the risen Christ standing before them, Jesus had a little Bible study, just like we are this morning. He had his disciples huddle around. He said, look, let me teach you the Bible once more. Let's have a little Bible study. And this is what it was like. Verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in the scriptures the things concerning himself. The subject of his Bible study that day was Christ, the Messiah, it was himself. He wanted to show his disciples himself. And where did he start? Moses and the prophets. Brothers, what I want you to see this morning and every week throughout the fall is that the story of the gospel, the story of Jesus Christ does not begin with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The story of Jesus Christ begins in Genesis, and it goes all the way to Revelation. This Bible is one story. It's not two separate stories. It describes the drama of redemption given to us by one God, not two different gods, but one God, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New. And it tells us the story of His Son, Jesus Christ, one story and one Christ and the power of His Holy Spirit to bring even the hardest of sinner to saving faith and to redeem us from our sin. Each morning uh, this semester, we're going to look at a different passage from the Old Testament of all places. And we will discover Jesus Christ there. Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, the Word of God, in the Old Testament, we'll see how every story of the Old Testament points to Christ, and we'll see how the New Testament looks back on the Old Testament, just like Jesus was on the road to Emmaus, revealing to us the hope that we have in Christ and all things. Brothers, as you go to the Bible, I want you to recognize something. The Bible is not primarily about you. 
Let me say that again. The Bible is not primarily about you. The Bible is about Jesus. And that makes it the most relevant, most life-giving thing you could ever put yourself in front of. So this morning, where are we going to begin? Well, we'll begin at the beginning. We're going to start with Genesis. Just about 10 to 15 minutes or so, I want to show you just the first few chapters of Genesis and how in just the first few chapters of Genesis, not only do we see Jesus, but we see the story of redemption. We see creation, we see fall, and we see redemption. Here's where I want to begin. I want to begin with creation. I want you to look uh, on your sheet, Genesis chapter 1. This is the story of creation. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Now, if you've grown up in a Christian home, if you've grown up around modern evangelical Christianity, you are probably at some point told um, the gospel somehow. And what I've witnessed over the last several decades is somehow this story has begun in the wrong place. Somehow the story of the gospel, so often the way it's told, is it begins with sin. It begins with fall. It begins with you are broken, you are a sinner, and you need grace. Now, is that untrue? No, of course not. That is absolutely true. We're going to get to that in a second. But that is not where the story begins, and that's incredibly important. The story of the gospel, the story of the Bible, does not begin with the fall. That's in the next chapter. The story of the Bible begins with creation. Here is why that's incredibly important. You were made in the image of God. I want that to sink into you this morning. You were made in His image. Our God, the God of the universe, the God who set the world into motion, the planets and the stars and the heavens, this same God made all things and declared them good. This same God has made you and has made you intentionally. Right? You were fearfully and wonderfully made. Somehow that became a women's verse. I don't know how that happened. That's true for you too, brothers. You are fearfully and wonderfully made intentionally. There are parts of who you are that is unique to only you. And He has made you in His image to declare to the world, this is what I am like. To a world that cannot see Him to say, this is what my character is like. There is nothing in all of creation, even the majesty of the universe itself that can proclaim the work of His handiwork like you. And as we read Genesis, we need to ask ourselves, what are we looking for? Some of you know my story. Um, I, for many, many years now, have struggled with unbelief, struggled with doubt. There are times where I still find myself just warring against questions and thoughts, and it's in those moments that I have to turn to the Word of God. I have to turn to prayer, the means of grace, to help me to wrestle. One of those earliest doubts for me was the creation story, perhaps that describes you this morning. 
Maybe even this morning as you come into a church like this, you're, you're wondering, how could any of this be true? Maybe for you as you approach the Bible, it's not a rule book or a guidebook, but it's more like a fable, more like a myth, and something like Genesis just confirms that. How do you reconcile? That's the question I ask. How do you reconcile what science has to teach us with what Genesis says? But see, the problem that I had is that I was treating the Bible like a science textbook to go up against science. But that's not what the Bible is. The Bible is not trying to answer that question. Can the Bible help us understand how and why and where? Of course it can. But the primary question that Genesis and creation is trying to answer is the question, who? Who? Who is it that has made heaven and earth? Who is it that has made us? Who is it that is behind all things? Who is it that is sovereign? Who is creator? Who has done this? His name is God. He is Yahweh. He is the maker, creator of all things. He is the sustainer of all things. And as Colossians tells us, Christ was there and all things were made through Him and for Him. He is creator. We have been made in His image. The problem is that image has been completely broken in us. It has been almost utterly destroyed by sin. Yes, the story of the gospel begins with creation, but it continues with the fall. I want you to look at Genesis 3. It's there on your sheet. Genesis 3, verse 1. After God has made all of uh, the world, all of the universe, all of the heavens and day and night, after He's made Adam and Eve, and after He has rested on the seventh day, we're told in Genesis 3, verse 1, that the serpent... So Satan himself was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. What happened here? This has been for centuries referred to as the fall. The fall of humanity. You don't have to have grown up in a place like Dallas, Texas, or around Christianity. You've probably heard about the fall before. Many people, as if, when they've read this, really for their own eyes for the first time, they really are filled with questions. And probably the biggest question is, that's it? <laughs> I mean, this is the reason why there's brokenness and sin in the world, while there is famine and disease and hurricanes, why, why everything is broken because they ate an apple? I mean, what's the big deal? I want you to wrestle with that. What is the big deal? The big deal is the foundation, I believe, of every sin that we commit. Every temptation that you face, every single thing that you wrestle with as a man, really comes down to one thing. Did God really say? 
did God really say? You may have heard it said before. It's the first question of the Bible. The first question recorded in the Bible is from Satan himself. Did God really say? He is questioning the truthfulness, authority, and majesty of God. This isn't just doubt. It's disbelief wrapped in disobedience. It's calling God into question. So I want you to think about it this way, brothers. If we are saved through faith alone and not by works, if it's faith that enters us into the redemption story, then of all things, the thing that keeps us as far from the gospel is unbelief. It's doubt. It's questioning that God could be trusted And I would tell you this morning that that is the thing underneath every single sin that we commit. With every action, every lust that we succumb to, right? Every evil deed that we participate in, every single thing that we do that is contrary to what God would have for us, every sin underneath us, we are saying God cannot be trusted. We're questioning whether or not God really sinned. But I want you to notice in Genesis 3 that it's not just sin that entered the world at the fall. Another thing entered in with it, a thing that is sinister and dark. And I'm sorry to say, I don't think we talk enough about in the church. Shame. Not just sin, but shame came with it. I want you to keep reading with me verse 7. Then the eyes of both... Adam and Eve were opened. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. It is absolutely true that sin separates us from God. It does so objectively. We are called to be holy as like He is holy, and God cannot be in the presence of unholiness. That is true. But what I want you to recognize this morning is that shame is a voluntary reaction that we have to remove ourselves from God. What do I mean by that? I want you to look at two reactions that Adam and Eve had once they realized what they had done. The first reaction is this. They hid themselves. Suddenly they realized that they were naked. I want you to think about that, not too long this morning, but the feeling of being exposed. Not because you want to be exposed, because you've been forced to be exposed. That's how they felt. They felt suddenly found out. So often I speak with men, and that's their greatest fear, that they would be found out. Perhaps that's your fear this morning. Suddenly they were exposed, and so they hid themselves. First, they hid themselves from one another. They covered themselves. How often do we do that, men? When we recognize for a moment just how broken, how needy, how desperate we really are, our first reaction is to hide from other people. Even to hide from the people who are closest to us. 
Perhaps for some of you this morning, that's the people around your table. You find it so difficult to be honest, to be transparent. The reason is shame. And you feel that so strongly. For others of you this morning, that person is your wife, if you're married, or a roommate. The closest person that could possibly be, and yet you find themselves in shame, hiding from them. Why? Because you don't want to be exposed. You don't want to be found out. You don't want to admit that you're broken. Here is the truth. We're all in this together. And I'm right there with you. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Every one of us. We are all broken, all needy. And the reality is we've all been exposed. But it's not just to one another. After Adam and Eve hide from one another, then in verse 8, it says, The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. And this is why sin and the fall is so destructive. We believe a lie that says the place I need to go when my sin has been exposed is as far away from God as possible. That if I can get as far away from God, then I can kind of clean myself up, kind of reckon with my own sin, figure out the way that I need to present myself to other people, and then to God, and then I can come back. And what I want you to see is that that is a lie from Satan himself. That is what Satan wants nothing more to do to you than to get you from the presence of the Lord. When your sin is exposed, don't run away from God. Run to Him. Why? Because He is our Redeemer, our Savior, and He is our Rescuer. Where we're going to end this morning before we go to our tables. The end of Genesis 3, right there we have the story of the curse. Adam and Eve have been thrown out of the garden. Uh, We now bear this burden of work that is now cursed, and we feel that every day. And not only does Adam and Eve, do they, are they now cursed, but then God, in verse 14, curses Satan himself. In the middle of this curse, we have a promise. It's known as the Proto-Evangelium. It means the first gospel. Sandwiched in the middle of God's curse because of the fall is the promise of redemption. The story of the gospel, Christ is here. Let me show you. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the servant, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above every beast of the field, on your belly you shall go. Dust you shall eat the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Verse 15 I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. The word offspring here in the Hebrew is singular, but it's a collective singular. It's representative of not just one person. It is one person, but it's representative of a whole race. So between your offspring and her offspring, you could say that this is... These two phrases together is the story of the Bible. This is the story. This is where everything is now going to flow from. I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, the cosmic battle between Satan and the people of God. 
It's the story of the Old Testament. It's the story of the New Testament. If you were with us last semester talking about Revelation, or if you saw, I don't even remember, I get them all mixed up now. When we talked about Revelation, <laughs> it's the story of Revelation. This cosmic battle between Satan warring against the people of God. I will put enmity between you and the offspring, between your offspring and her offspring. Right? The promise, the word in the Hebrew Bible is seed. And we see this word over and over and over again throughout the Scriptures. It's the same word that's promised to Abraham just a few chapters later in Genesis 12, 15, 17. A promise of not just any kind of offspring, a specific kind of offspring. The seed of the woman would become the seed of Abraham, the seed of David, David's greater son, the king, the Messiah, the offspring, Jesus Christ. Genesis 15 is a promise that from this seed of the woman, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, will come. Not only that, but Genesis 15 tells us what will happen. Notice it says that you shall bruise his heel. Who is the he? It's the seed. Christ himself. Who is the you? It's Satan. You shall bruise his heel. We feel that every single day. We feel that bruise. The brokenness of sin. Christ felt that bruise for you and for me when he laid his life down on the cross. He was bruised. He was wounded for our transgressions by his stripes. We have been healed. It's the promise of redemption, brothers. It's the cross itself that Satan, yes, would bruise his heel. How? In the way that Christ has borne your sin in his body on the tree. He was punished for you. He was wounded for you. He was bruised for you. But Genesis 15 doesn't, or 3.15 doesn't just stop there. It says, He shall bruise your head. Who is the he? It's the seed. It's Jesus Christ. He shall bruise the head of the serpent. What happens if you step on the head of a snake? I have no doubt some of you have done that before in your lifetime. I'll never forget when I was a kid, I walked out one morning, uh, and uh, it was a Saturday morning, and my dad had a big old garden hoe in his hand. I looked down, and there was a rattlesnake on our front porch. lived in Waco, Texas, and our house was built uh, in an old field. So you can imagine there's all kinds of things that were (laughs) coming to the front porch after it had been completed, and he had cut off the head of the snake with a hoe. I have no doubt that many of you men have done that before. When you crush the head of a snake, it's dead. Not just wounded, not just bruised, but it has been defeated once and for all. When Jesus Christ rose again, the head of that nasty serpent, the snake, the devil himself, had been defeated once and for all. We know that one day when Christ returns, he will defeat the dragon. Satan himself, for you and for me. His victory is ours to the point of this, and this is what I'm going to leave you with this morning. Romans 16, 20. Let this be your hope this morning, that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace 
of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Brothers, men, the story of Jesus Christ is here from Genesis to Revelation. It's a story about the victory that Christ had over sin and death is yours. It is yours for all who will believe in His name. His victory is your victory. And not only underneath His foot, but under your feet as well will Satan be crushed once and for all. Why? Because He died and He rose again for you. Let me pray and send you to your tables. Father, I pray now as we wrestle with these things that you would help us to see your Son again, just like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, we find ourselves searching for Him. So we pray as we come to your Word that you would reveal your Son, Jesus Christ, in your Word from Genesis to Revelation. As we look at Genesis 1 and 3 this morning, help us to see Him. And in finding Him, would we find ourselves in the redemption that we have in His death and resurrection. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.